morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another live edition. Yes, we're live tonight on the other side of midnight. That that really magical time. And I probably have to stop using that because when I say magical, people think I'm talking about, you know, woo woo stuff or something maybe hyperdimensional. And what I'm talking about is that we're really going to be talking about it tonight. This is a unique time in any measure of time. This is a unique time in history, a unique time in the chronicles of Earth, a unique time in the physics itself, which uh, in the third hour we may get into because we're going to have my primary guest tonight is a citizen historian. We've had many citizen scientists but I thought I would do a change-up tonight, and we have a citizen historian with us, uh, Marvin D. Jones, not to be confused with any famous football players. want to make that notice. But we're going to be joined in the third hour with by Georgia Lambert because our conversation is going to grade from historical to metaphysically historical. And if you wonder, what, what does he mean by that? Well, you'll have to hang around till the third hour, and hopefully then it will become clear. Now, for those of you who are new to the show, and I know we're picking up uh, new listeners all the time. Uh, my old radio friend, uh, um, Fred London, used to term the, this the uh, frogs in the wheelbarrow problem. People leaping in and leaping out, and you can't really keep track. So we have a lot of new listeners, and for you who do not know, kind of how this show works. We have a section called Radio with Pictures. And what we do is we post items, images, links, um, quotes, anything that guests think would add to the kind of full experience of uh, listening to them for three hours. And of course, given that a lot of people uh, do not have uh, the proclivities to listen or, or rather watch the website live, for those who are members of Club 19.5, remember, all of our shows are archived in the club and for a very modest subscription, which is really trivial. I think it's about 33 tetrahedral cents per day. You can uh, have an infinite experience of listening to any archive show for however long as you want. You go back, you listen again. I mean, some of these shows are very, very, very dense in that we have a lot of information packed into three hours. So uh, that's a kind of a kind of an, you know, heads up for what may happen tonight, because we're going to be talking about a lot of specifics. And if names or references or websites go by you, you can pick them up, of course, if you're a member of the club, Club 19.5, which is really pretty trivial when it comes to today's information stream, because we try to present you with things that you get nowhere else. I mean, I really mean that. You can hear things on this show that you can literally hear nowhere else. And it's going to become increasingly so as we move into what I'm calling, and this isn't a euphemism, we're moving into what I call the end game. Remember, I have been chasing NASA, our friendly local neighborhood space agency, for almost half a century, trying to get them to come clean and own up to what is surrounding us in the solar system, beginning with the moon, moving on to Mars, the satellites of Jupiter, um, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, the whole outer solar system, 
up to and including this bizarre object that the New Horizons spacecraft flew by after it made its encounter with Pluto back in uh, summer 2015, and of course spotted in glorious color all these ancient, incredibly ruined, vast, mega engineering arcologies, many of them broken open to the airless skies, although the Pluto skies are not really airless. There is an atmosphere. It's mostly nitrogen. Now that's interesting. And it created that incredible blue background of forward scattered light when the New Horizons spacecraft, after the flyby, kind of turned around, looked back and took this incredible color image of the night side of Pluto, which remember is about half the size of our own moon, and yet for a long time was classified as a planet, as the ninth planet. Um, that's a long discussion, but I still think because of historical reasons, it still should be classified as one of the original nine planets, pre-space age, but that's a whole other conversation. Anyway, um, when the spacecraft looked back, it photographed this incredible blue ring around Pluto, which of course is the atmosphere, the air, the Plutonian atmosphere, which waxes and wanes with the seasons, because Pluto does have seasons, even though it takes forever, 248 years to go around the sun once. In fact, we're coming up, if we already have not passed it, on the Pluto return, meaning it is now back in space relative to the galaxy where it was when Clyde Tombow in 1930 uh, first discovered it. Anyway, um, Pluto has an atmosphere even though it's not breathable. You will die if you try to breathe pure nitrogen because we need oxygen. And on Earth we have about 20% oxygen and about 78% nitrogen and the rest of it is those trace elements, trace molecules like CO2 and carbon monoxide, a little whiff of argon and a few other things, but most of it is nitrogen and oxygen, and Pluto is nitrogen, but without the oxygen, which of course raises the interesting question, where did the nitrogen come from? Did Pluto formally have a breathable atmosphere with oxygen? Is that what the folks in those huge, ancient, ruined arcologies used to uh, experience when they went outside? All questions that we cannot answer tonight, nor should we try because we have more important things much closer to home to answer. So long peroration for you who are new to the other side of midnight. What you want to do is click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically, a republic, madam if you can keep it, which is a direct quote from Benjamin Franklin at the uh, Summer Constitutional Convention in the summer of 1787. And we even know the name of the woman who asked the question. She was there, but of course, because of uh, gender bias back in the era of the revolution, women were not allowed to formally participate, but she did everything with the convention except actually deliberate among the other delegates, so we know who it was, we know the context of a question, and it is a question and an answer which is ringing down through the ages. Over 246 years later, we are still asking this question, do we have a republic, and if so, how 
do we keep it? And that, of course, is going to be the central focus of our uh, conversation tonight. I'll have a few more words to say in a moment, but I want to go directly to the other side of midnight banner. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page for Marvin D. Jones tonight. And right under that banner on the top of the guest page, you will see uh, where it says fast links to items. Click on my name. That takes you down to my section of radio with pictures. And as usual, we're going to open tonight with some news stories. Um, the NASA hierarchy involved in the Artemis One return mission with a human-rated spacecraft to the moon, which will occur in the next uh, couple of years, kicks off in less than a month now. I think it's 24 days and counting because on August 29th, this incredible rocket, the most powerful NASA rocket since the Saturn V, the SLS, the Space Launch System Vehicle, will loft the Orion spacecraft and the European service module into an orbit that will eventually, a couple hours after launch, result in a trans-lunar injection, a rocket burn which will take that spacecraft, the Orion command module and the European service module, back to the vicinity of the moon for the first time that a human-rated spacecraft has gone back to the moon since 1972. And this is obviously the beginning of a very interesting sequence of events. This is what I call the end game because this unmanned mission, which will be launched on a 42-day duration mission, which includes some very interesting looping orbits of the moon, taking it tens of thousands of miles away and then back within like 60 uh, miles of the surface. This is a prelude to a second crewed mission, meaning it will carry a human crew of uh, four astronauts that will take place according to current planning. And if this unmanned test flight uh, works, they will do that um, uh, in 20. 24, I believe. And then in 2025, there will be an artist, Artemis mission number three, which will carry four astronauts down to the surface of the moon for the first time since Apollo in 1972. Now, why am I all excited about Artemis one? Because it's unmanned and it's just robotic and they're just kind of testing systems. Well, the answer lies in what the Artemis one spacecraft carries which is lots and lots of live video streaming HD, incredible resolution color cameras that will photograph the hell out of the moon and the Orion spacecraft and the Earth in the background and all kinds of other things um, beginning at the end of the month. Uh, and as we get closer, I will describe the details of the mission. But if you want to have a real good preview, if you click on that link tonight, that is a YouTube video that NASA posted a couple days ago of the August 5th briefing yesterday by all the high mucky mucks at NASA headquarters, uh, the mission manager and the program manager and the launch manager and uh, some of the bureaucracy from, from NASA itself describing the overview, the outlines of the Artemis One mission. So if you want to save your 
self from you know letting your fingers do the walking through various Google questions, and you want to go directly to an overview from the folks who are managing the mission, that is a good way to spend about an hour, hour and a half uh, with some very good questions from the members of the press following, including my old friend Bill Harwood, who, of course, is the space reporter now, only only one left from the era of you know, Cronkite's um, sojourn at NASA, at uh, NASA, at CBS, where I worked for him all those years ago as part of the original Project Apollo. Well, Bill Harwood is the only member left of that generation, and he asked good questions, and his question of these assembled experts was really good, and you will hear it if you click on the video, and that will give you an overview. Now, in the coming weeks, I'm putting together a really important backgrounder, like I did with Webb, on what this mission is going to reveal, really, about the moon. And it's a lot more than NASA's been telling you. In fact, there are other missions that are heading to the moon tonight uh, that are going to give us really intriguing answers. As you know, a few weeks ago, an unmanned uh, microwave-sized spacecraft called the Capstone Mission was launched toward the moon on a very leisurely orbit. It will take it uh, from now till November 13th to get into lunar orbit in this very strange rectilinear, uh, what they call a halo orbit, which will mimic precisely the orbit of the planned lunar gateway uh, lunar space station, which will be emplaced around the moon before the Artemis three mission flies. So the crew will go from Earth orbit to lunar orbit, rendezvous with the gateway mission, which will be in a polar orbit, and then from there they will descend in a lander that Elon Musk is building under contract to NASA for the descent from lunar orbit to the lunar surface part of the mission. That will all unfold in the next couple, three years. But tonight, another unmanned mission is joining the uh, capstone mission en route to the moon. A couple days ago, the South Koreans launched an almost 1,500-pound unmanned lunar spacecraft, their first lunar spacecraft with their developing and, and maturing uh, unmanned space technology. Uh, it carries a bunch of instruments, the most important to our discussion being the 33-pound, 33 pounds, not an accident. Remember, NASA can't do anything without a ritual. So 33 Masonic tetrahedral pounds of a camera called the Shadow Cam. And, I mean, this really, I, I should have a sound effect here, but I don't. So I will have to do it myself. Remember that old-time radio show? Only the Shadow knows. The Shadow. And then he would come on and laugh and go... The shadow knows. Ha 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 ha. Anyway, this shadow cam, which is built by Mike Malin, one of the senior uh, sensors at NASA in charge of unmanned spacecraft cameras, who takes a million pictures and only shows us two or three with nothing incriminating. Well, Malin built, of Malin Space Science Systems in Southern California, Malin built the 33 pound shadow camera for the South Korean unmanned mission. And why am I focusing on this? Well, besides the weird pun, what the shadow cam is supposed to do 
with an extraordinary technological advance, making it hundreds of times more sensitive than any digital camera that NASA has ever flown to the environs of the moon before, as it's supposed to do literally what its name implies. Uh, given that the Artemis three mission is going to be the first to land literally at the moon's south pole, where all the volatiles are stored in cold traps, including water and all kinds of other crucially essential molecules. Um, the Artemis mission is going to go to the South Pole as the first landing since 72 to begin emplacement of a full-time lunar moon base, kind of like Moon Base Alpha, except on not being on the far side, it will be on the south hemisphere of the moon located relatively close to the South Pole because of the availability of frozen water and frozen CO2 and frozen lots of other very important and essential molecules that are not only critical for breathing and rocket fuel, but for manufacturing stuff. They call it in situ resource utilization. Another wonderful NASA acronym. Um, in situ. Anyway, um, the Artemis 3 mission can only make it there if it has the Gateway Lunar um, Space Station successfully orbiting the moon that it can rendezvous with because that's where they will leave the Orion uh, ESA service module spacecraft docked to the gateway and they will enter Elon Musk's dedicated lunar lander which will go from the gateway to the lunar surface and without the Artemis without the uh, gateway mission none of this can take place so the gateway mission is critical the Gateway mission cannot proceed into this very unusual orbit to act as a way station from lunar orbit to the lunar surface unless the Capstone mission succeeds. And the Capstone mission, as you know, right after launch, kind of disappeared for a day or so before they were able to get it back. All of which, of course, we're going to talk about in some detail tomorrow night because the guest that I had planned live for tomorrow night who was going to talk to us finally about how do we know what we know, had a medical issue come up. No, it's not COVID. It has something to do with the fact that uh, he's no longer a spring chicken. And so his doctors recommended that he not stay up in the middle of the night and we could not arrange to be taped. So we will have to defer his appearance on the other side for uh, at least two or three weeks. Uh, but I will let you know when he is rescheduled. So tomorrow night, we're going to replay my show of a couple weeks ago titled, Is Someone Blackmailing NASA? With a lot of very specific information. And um, it's so interesting because one of the items that I m mentioned on the show in some detail is the fact that the SpaceX uh, Crew 5 that are supposed to leave from Earth uh, in August and rendezvous with the space station, replacing Crew-4 on a Falcon 9 and in a Dragon spacecraft built, of course, by Musk, uh, they had to delay their flight to replace the astronauts from Crew-4 because their Falcon 9 en route <clears throat> to testing in Texas hit a bridge. I kid you not, the driver drove into a bridge with a whole Falcon 9 on a trailer behind him. And 
I asked all kinds of questions, which you'll hear again tomorrow night, as to how this could have happened. What's so interesting is, even though the subject in this Artemis briefing came up briefly, nobody explained. In fact, nobody even asked of the press corps, how the hell did your driver hit a bridge? Because these routes are carefully plotted out. They're surveyed. Every overpass is measured. You do not want to drive a, you know, 14-foot-high uh, trailer with a, with a rocket in it under a 13-foot-tall bridge. That is not done. Except in this case, it was done. And yet no reporter asked the obvious question, how did this guy, this idiot, mess up? Was he on something? Was he drinking? Did he have a six-pack on the, on the seat next to him? Uh, how, do you, how do you drive a million-buck rocket plus into a bridge on a route that you've driven hundreds and hundreds of times before? No one asked the question. It's amazing the number of questions of government that are not being asked, which, of course, is a kind of a subtle segue into our discussion tonight with uh, Marvin Jones. Item number three. Um, the James Webb Telescope is continuing to return absolutely stunning, awesome, amazing, never seen before images. And so if you click on that link, you will see a backgrounder from the web people as to how they're going to take new data, the time frame on which that data will be made available to the public, several clickable websites where you can see images that the press doesn't go ooh and ah over, so they get don't get replicated. This is the original source. These are links directly to the James Webb Space Telescope team. Uh, including uh, where the original image of the Cartwheel Galaxy is, which is our featured image in the web uh, item tonight, because the mainstream explanation, and I don't have time to go into details on this tonight, but I will in a future program, the mainstream explanation for this stunning view, I mean, this object is called, it's about half a billion light years away, 500 million light years out, and you can see all over the image a whole bunch of galaxies that are much, much, much further away. But this one is called the Cartwheel Galaxy. It's been known for decades from Earth-based astronomy. Of course, the best image up till now was taken by Hubble, but because there's so much gas and dust in the system, all those stars in the spokes of the Cartwheel that you can incredibly clearly see on the web image are hardly visible on the um, uh, Hubble image, which, of course, is contained within the link if you go to that uh, James Webb link. And the conventional mainstream astrophysical explanation is, of course, that this galaxy, among many millions out there, uh, uh, you know, suffered a random hit from another nearby galaxy. And because there is so much empty space between stars and galaxies, they literally pass through each other like air blowing through air. And the stars don't collide or even directly interact uh, in close-up, but the gravitational fields do interact, and that changes the orbits of all the stars in both galaxies after the collision is over. And, of course, collisions can be sideswipes, they can be head-on, they can be any angle, they can be edge-on. You know, there's no rule that says the galaxy has to hit the center of the other galaxy uh, like a like a bullseye, except in the, in this case, 
the mainstream astrophysicists say that's what happened, and that's why we have this extraordinary uh, evenly spaced set of spokes, curved spokes caused by the rotation, the differential rotation of the uh, uh, galaxy stars around the center after the collision, hundreds of millions of years after the collision. Now, I look at this, and given the fact that several months ago I showed this audience a stunning image of a square galaxy, I kid you not, a galaxy where the edges turn right angles, go around, right angles, round, right angle, right, a square galaxy with a central core. Um, and I postulated very seriously that this may be evidence of one of Kardashev's type three civilization. Remember the Kardashev scale, where you have successive scales for civilizations that can control more and more and more energy? Well, type three on the Kardashev scale is a, a civilization which can literally control the energy of galaxies, meaning, of course, it has to be hyperdimensional control of the torsion field. And so when I look at the cartwheel, given that I've already shown you a an impossible square galaxy, I mean, how do the stars make, make the turns? What causes them to go at right angles to their previous orbits? Come on. So I think we're looking in the cartwheel and in the previous square galaxy, my name for it, uh, the evidence of Kardashev's type three civilizations. And the more you look at that exquisite web image, remember, a telescope now 100 times, if not larger, than its capabilities than, than, than Hubble, 100 times. I mean, in physics way back when, when I was learning physics, uh, I had a physics teacher, Mr. Mulak. If any of his children are listening, hats off to Mr. Mulak, as he said, one afternoon as we were, you know, learning physics in high school, the way you do, he said, in physics, nothing really matters except orders of magnitude. What's an order of magnitude? It's a factor of 10. So Webb is 100 times two orders of magnitude more powerful than Hubble. Imagine what we're going to see and learn and understand, which will obviously change our society. And that's another whole discussion which we've had in the past and we will have again. Item number four. Uh, number four is really important because we passed literally just a, a day ago, yesterday, the exact 10th anniversary, 10 years to the day, yesterday evening, for when the Curiosity nuclear-powered car-sized rover successfully landed in Gale Crater on the planet Mars. And we've got all kinds of amazing things that over the last 10 years, Curiosity has shown us, has proven scientifically, not the least of which is organic molecules on Mars. And before you all jump up and down and say, oh, oh, organics, life, life. No, the mainstream guys are being really, 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 really conservative in pointing out that there are two ways to get organic molecules. One is by means of um, life. The other is through abiotic means, meaning natural chemistry. Well, um, a few months ago, a couple of months ago, 
the Perseverance rover, the successor of Curiosity, landing in a totally different place on Mars, actually confirmed the presence of carbon-13 uh, uh, molecules, which is the indication of abiotic um, creation, compared to the ratio with carbon-12, which is the uh, carbon isotope, which is indicative of biology. So that really opens the door to potential biology, ancient or maybe current biology on Mars. So uh, we're at the bottom of the hour. Uh, my guest this morning is going to be uh, Marvin D. Jones. And what we're going to do, since we're going to be talking about the founders, the inhabitants of Boston and Virginia and the rest of the colonies and the American Revolution grading into the great American experiment, this constitutional republic. We're going to be playing some music as part of our bumpers tonight from the revolution. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland, Marvin D. Jones, when we return. Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday, August 6th, one day after the 10th anniversary of the Curiosity landing on the planet Mars and ushering in the Martian Revolution, which, among other things, now seems to have confirmed uh, to all except the real holdouts the detection of actual biological organic molecules on Mars. And that, of course, opens up extraordinary, extraordinary possibilities. My guest tonight is uh, Marvin Jones, Marvin D. Jones, not to be confused with the uh, famous football player. So without further ado, let me give you some background. Marvin is kind of an experiment tonight. Many, many years ago, when Art was telling me 
that I should do this show. Oh, that he ducked out before I had a chance to tell him what I thought of his wonderful idea. Um, he warned me, he said there are two things that I should never, ever, ever, never, never, ever, ever talk about on my show. One was religion <clears throat> and the other was politics. So, of course, over the years, I have uh, neatly ignored Art and his recommendations, and I have wandered in, you know, angels go where fools fear to tread or vice versa. Um, and I have tackled several times political discussions. Well, tonight we're going to have a big, big picture political discussion because, frankly, the republic is in serious jeopardy. And rather than waste time telling you my thoughts, I will bring on Marvin and we will have a very spirited conversation regarding uh, his research and his deep background because Marvin is one of those uh, history junkies, people that love history as much as I love science or the, you know, how science works, how we figure things out. And he is extraordinarily well-versed. He is kind of, and when I said this to him, he was kind of surprised because I said, Marvin, I want you on not an academic expert because I want to sample what thinking was back at the time of revolution where a well-rounded man, a well-rounded citizen, remember they wouldn't let women vote or even you know, participate, um, had to be a generalist. He had to know a lot of things about a lot of things, including history. So Marvin kind of, uh, uh, it, you know, encapsulates the idea that to be a functioning, thinking voter, a citizen of the United States of America, of the Republic these days, you better learn some damn history because most of what's out there, both by design and by stupidity, is wrong. Marvin had two family members who were great, uh, greatly influential on Marvin's life. His great aunt, who was born in 1882, told him about King David and King Solomon. She also taught him about the presidents. His mother always offered encouragement regarding his studies, and she made it clear that leaders make a difference. Both taught him about the Holocaust while still in single digits. His fourth and fifth grade teacher made history come alive for Marvin. He helped students understand how to look at things like those who were there. Then came much later President Kennedy, who offered a history lesson to Marvin in real time. Marvin, like I did, watched his press conferences, State of the Union addresses, and other speeches, but JFK's decision to go to the moon on the basis of 15 minutes worth of space flight experience captured his imagination. In fact, it still does. Reading, listening to historians, journalists, politicians has now become a habit. It cannot be broken. Marvin comes from a family that has served in every branch of the armed forces, although they are predominantly army, as was he. Because American involvement in Vietnam was winding down, Marvin was sent to what was then West Germany. Upon return to the States, he finished what he began overseas at the University of Maryland University College and received a, bachelor, received rather, a bachelor's degree in government. Among other things, remember he's a generalist, Marvin has worked in a junkyard, 
had a research firm doing work for the United States government, and on litigation support projects as a document analyst, a member of the cleanup crew, and a team leader. His last job was in Massachusetts Veterans Services, which was through a federal grant. He is now retired, lives in western Massachusetts, uh, I guess not far from Springfield, and his lifelong history, interest in history, continues. Marvin Jones, come on down. (laughs) Hi, Richard. How are you? Well, after that bio, I've got to ask you, what was your feelings when you saw all the Republicans who had voted yes to this incredible veterans bill that will finally uh, give these veterans going all the way back to ancient Orange and Vietnam in in crucial, essential medical relief up to now, including the burn pits. What did you think when 22 of these guys switched their votes just out of spite, preventing incredibly crucial health care from reaching veterans for at least another week? Disgust. Utter disgust. And why do you think they would think this is in their political interest? What have we become as a society where their supporters, their voters, the people who vote Republican regardless in every election, literally can watch them, you know, grinding their heel into the faces of veterans, people who have given the last full measure of devotion up to and including now incredibly debilitating cancers, and they literally gave them the finger? Well, it just goes to show how far we have gotten away from what the founders intended. And there is a line from the Knox report. Uh, I just need to explain what that was. Uh, President Washington had Secretary of War Henry Knox uh, send a report to Congress in support of, in, in modern language, universal national service. And what was interesting about that report is toward the end of it, this is what it says. Therefore, it ought to be a permanent rule that those who in use decline or refuse to subject themselves to the course of military education established by the laws should be considered as unworthy of public trust or public honors and be excluded therefrom accordingly. So when I see these politicians prance around doing a tough guy shtick and talking about how uh, they are more American than now, my mind constantly goes back to the beginning because General Washington was commander-in-chief of the Continental Forces. He was in the field the entire time of the war with his troops. Uh, 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 Henry Knox had been an artillery officer in the Continental Army. Okay, So that is what comes to mind. And I appreciate more and more why President Washington had Secretary of War Knox in that report to Congress, because it was just so thoughtful that there should be a connection 
between the leaders and the citizens. These guys now are just out of touch with reality. It, it is just almost beyond belief that they would not provide support to those who do the country's dirty work. Well, to me, growing up, you know, during the, the Korean War, and then uh, I was born at the very end of World War II, of course, um, mm -hmm. the Korean War, Vietnam, um, the idea that we would literally castigate veterans who we used to revere, and we would now literally vote against their health care on the basis of, oh, we got snookered because uh, the, the Democratic uh, uh, leader of the Senate outfox the Republican leader and it was just a vote for spite. I mean, see, these politicians can't maintain that posture unless their constituencies, unless their voters go along with it. So what's happened to, quote, Americans that a third of the population is okay with this insanity? Because they, like those gentlemen who voted against the, the veterans' health bill, they no longer serve. Richard, when you, when you and I grew up, I'm sure you knew a number of people in your neighborhood who had served in the armed forces, just like I did, just right now talking to you, instantaneously, various faces popping in my mind of people up and down the street, guys that I played uh, uh, football, ba baseball, with, in the case with their fathers or uncles, cousins, and so on, who served. And now that is very unusual. When, when I was working out of, out of, uh, outside of the Commonwealth at, at a college, uh, one uh, co-ed that, that worked with me at my, uh, my nighttime uh, job uh, there, she told me that I was the only veteran that she knew. And hmm. that, to me, is part, is part of the problem, that, that there is no longer that common experience. And see, that's why I read that uh, a portion from the Knox Report, because that was, was part of what the former, uh, man who by that time was a former commander-in-chief of Continental Forces wanted to be a part of the country, where people would have this connection as I said before, the leaders uh, with the, the citizens and then even the citizens interacting uh, uh, with each other and people would have knowledge of something beyond themselves. One of the uh, wonderful experiences uh, of having family members who served in the armed forces, uh, one member who had... had uh, uh, been in the, uh, he was in, on active duty in the Air Force. And I never will forget when he took me along, and this, this was during the Cold War, when he took me along uh, a flight line of B-52s. And it, it was just, it just filled me with awe, right? Because there's something, there's a big difference between hearing about something and seeing it in the newspaper or on television and actually seeing it. And then, of course, when I was on act, active duty, uh, actually being around 
the power of our uh, country on a daily basis. And I found it uh, uh, humbling. Hmm. Well, there is no... See, everyone can't have the same experience. And even at the height of the draft, you know, in in the wars uh, the United States has participated in, a relatively small fraction of the population actually went to war. I think mm-hmm. there's something much deeper. I, 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 mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm, I'm looking... One of the things I wanted to ask you is, how far have we drifted from the idea of Franklin when the woman asked him, and I keep forgetting her name, I think her first name. Uh, it, it was uh, e- Eliza uh, uh, Powell. Powell. Yes, with Powell, Powell. Yeah, I was thinking of a, mm-hmm. of a, you know the famous general. Um, but mm-hmm. we we know her name. We know it's real. It's not an urban legend. And and he said, you know, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. What happened to that idea of citizens keeping the most precious gift? we ever get from our ancestors, which is a democratic republic. Nothing is higher, nothing, not even life itself, because life in servitude is not life. So this experiment, something has happened at the core of the experiment, and I don't think we can explain it simply because most people do not serve. Most people have never served, but something else has changed. Do you have any ideas what? Well, part of it, obviously, it has to be related to education. Uh, and a teacher uh, was telling me how civics is no longer taught in a lot, lot of schools, which is just absolutely astonishing. That there cannot be an American republic without education and I also think Richard that there is a a tendency because we have been uh, blessed for for the United States of America to exist for 246 years and there's a tendency for people to take it for granted but republics are rare in, in preparation for the, uh, the, the federal convention, or, or other people call it the constitutional convention, James Madison gathered together the constitutions of the ancient republics to see where where they succeeded and why, and and, and where they failed and why. Mm. And one of the, the uh, 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 qualities that a republic has to have to exist is uh, a virtue, right? And from my, this is my my point. Meaning, point meaning, virtue. good good men and women inclined toward service to society as opposed to service to self. Right, right, right. And in order for there to be virtue, again, this is this is just now my my point of view. Uh, there has to be courage. One absolutely has to be have courage, and then one cannot have courage without character. And my definition of character came about because of uh, some remarks I, I was asked uh, to make. This is oh my god! This 
had been nearly two decades ago about uh, Washington uh, around the time of, of his, his birthday. And I always go back to refresh my, my memory and so on. But the definition that I came up for courage is, uh, excuse me, for character. Character is the union of thought, word, and deed directed toward a noble end. Hmm. Well, I think, and there's a politician these days on everyone's mind, you see her on television all the time, Liz Cheney. Uh, as she was developing her political, you know, stance and obviously taking a lot from her, her, her father, Dick Cheney, former vice president. Um, when, I, when I look at her policies and how she's voted, I don't agree with Liz Cheney on anything, anything, up to and including her, her, her position on, uh, you know, women's right to own their own bodies. But in this whole pursuit a violation at the most fundamental level of the Constitution, I would vote for her for president in a second if she ran because character and courage and virtue must be rewarded. And I would rely on the constitutional checks and balances of two opposing parties to kind of trust that not many or even all or, or, or any of, of her policy proposals would actually come into law. But the fact that she has shown such, such vision and character and continuity with the founders means that in a crunch, when something really mattered, Liz Cheney as president would determine the right course of action based on principle and not on expediency. And that seems to be something we've lost in almost every other Republican race and district and, and representative. Agreed. Okay. Let, let, let me go back in time, okay? The republic we now have is something that would be almost unrecognizable to the founders. Let's start by limbing out the vision. What was the vision of these men, these incredibly flawed men that were able to rise above their own personal limitations almost to the level of, of a supreme miracle when you look back? What was the thing yes. that set them apart to create this extraordinary experiment which, although it's in trouble, it's still got incredible fight, and I think we're going to ultimately win. Well, um, the, the, the founders were uh, children of the Enlightenment. And one thing that stood out to me when I read uh, Madison's notes that he took at, at the convention was one, one word that really just came to mind was thoughtfulness. Because you, you, you read and, and you see how they considered a particular uh, proposal and it was debated back, back and forth and they, they may have taken a preliminary uh, a, a vote on it and they still were not sure and said, okay, we'll, we'll come back to that later and they would take up other other things. And 
they really made an extraordinary effort to study uh, history. To, as, I, as I said, uh, uh, James Madison gathered together the constitutions of the ancient republics. And that was not just a, ca- a case with him. I'm mentioning him because he's considered the father of, of the Constitution. And when you read the uh, Federalist Papers, you see how, uh, say, whether it was Madison or uh, Hamilton, they, they wrote the vast majority of, of the Well, uh, since papers. a lot of people don't read history anymore, what were or what are the Federalist Papers? Oh, the uh, Federalist Papers were written by James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay. And they are considered the commentaries on the, on the Constitution. They were uh, written because, of course, after the Constitution uh, had been written at the convention, it then had to be uh, ratified. Uh, by uh, nine of the 13 uh, uh, states to go into effect. And one of the most critical uh, states was going to be New York. But uh, the the things that were written about had a a broader application beyond uh, just uh, getting getting ratified because to this day uh, the Supreme Court quotes from the uh, the Federalist Papers. Hmm. So these were letters that these guys exchanged back in a time when no phones, getting from town to town was on horseback or stagecoach, mm-hmm. and you had members of the Constitutional Convention representatives from the states scattered all over the colonies. So these dialogues took a long time, months and months, to send letters to have people think at the other end, no instant you know, typing, no uh, sending you know, email to the wrong people, like happened to Alex Jones the other day. Was that really an accident? <laughs> anyway, um, just a little you know, side note there. Just too timed, too perfectly timed. Really, come on. So long periods of time, where you could think and consider and reflect and and cogitate on a letter that came in before you had to respond. And so these were deep reflections on the impact and implications of all of the various uh, moving parts of this document called the Constitution, right? Yes, yes. As I said, they, they were written by uh, Madison, Hamilton, and Jay, predominant, uh, Madison and, and Jay, uh, predominantly by Madison and Hamilton. And they were written under the pseudonym of Publius, right? And they appeared uh, in, in the uh, newspaper. But of course, that was, there was no broadcast press, as you said, at, at the time. So these were commentaries. So, um, how did how? One thing I've always wondered: were were the were the were the ten amendments to the Constitution? Did they come out of these dialogues, or were they part of someone's bright idea during the convention? The uh, the ten amendments or the, the Bill of Rights came uh, after the uh, convention. 
uh, in the process of uh, the efforts to get the Constitution ratified uh, at uh, the various uh, state conventions, uh, a, a, a number of uh, the delegates to those state ratifying conventions wanted to uh, have a, a, a Bill of Rights. So ultimately, uh, essentially, a, 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 a promise was made that if the Constitution was ratified, uh, there would be a, a Bill of Rights added. And so uh, James Madison got to work on that um, when he had been elected to the, uh, the first House of Representatives. Which, one interesting thing, go ahead. Uh, though, uh, one interesting thing, though, in checking my memory here, in uh, Federalist Paper number 84, Alexander Hamilton uh, addressed this matter of a Bill of Rights. And what he says is rather interesting because he, he, he points out to those who said that the Constitution as it came out of the convention did not contain Bill of Rights. He reminded people that a Bill of Rights had been something that was required under a monarchy. Because remember, think back to um, King John and the nobles who uh, approached him and ultimately uh, he signed the Magna Carta and then subsequently there were various other things that led up to the uh, the, the English uh, Bill of Rights. So anyway, in number uh, 84, Hamilton uh, pointed out that a bill, of, a bill of Rights was something that would be necessary under a monarchy, okay? Mm-hmm. And that under our system, again, uh, you quoted uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Franklin, we have a republic. And Hamilton says that if you just read the preamble, that, that he, and he uh, uh, quoted uh, saying, we the people of the United States, and uh, of course he did not go through the whole thing, but he said, we the people of the United States uh, ordain and establish this constitution, referring to the, uh, what was, uh, oh, I know, we the people of the United States uh, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. And I'm going through all of all all of uh, that because now we have people saying, "Oh, well, if you did not uh, write down uh, every single thing that it might be possible to do, then you do not have a right to to do that." Hmm. Okay, hold it there. The, we're, okay, we're, we're at the top of the hour. This is called the Liberty Song, written during the Revolution. Kind of appropriate for our guest tonight, who is Marvin D. Jones, a citizen historian, with, as you can tell, a ready accessibility at his fingertips of all kinds of little arcana from this time period. I'm going to ask a really dumb question when we come back, but I won't tell you what it is now. You will have to wait. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Our worthy forefathers, let's give them a cheer. 
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.